Well, good morning, Disciples Church. What a privilege it is to be in corporate worship with you. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to to open God's Word with you this morning. I really do count uh, your leaders, your elders here at this church, solid brothers of mine, soldiers in the foxhole together, if you will. Love Pastor Joshua and and Brother Matt and and, and Brother Rob. These guys uh, are doing a wonderful work here in Bakersfield and Kern County. I appreciate the the, the reformation that's taking place in, in this part of, of our state, and uh, just good to be um, encouraged and supported and, and uh, sharing in gospel ministry uh, with uh, elders like yours. Um, there's some distance between us, but uh, I feel like uh, whenever we're in communication, when we do get to see each other, we get to pick up right where we left off. Because really, we're unified toward one, one goal, and that's the exaltation of our great God and the proclamation of, of the gospel of his son. And when we're about that together, boy, I just feel like uh, this can be home just as much as it is back in Clovis. So it's good to be with you. Uh, here's what I'm hoping takes place this summer as uh, Pastor Joshua is on sabbatical, that uh, he would be finding great refreshment and rest during this time, that he would uh, have wonderful time, intimate time with family, and uh, shepherding them well. And uh, I was telling the the first service, so I, I think guys like me are brought in uh, during these times. And, and I think one is to for sure to ensure that the Word of God is continually proclaimed and divided rightly before the people of God. We want that to happen in our churches for sure. But I also think there's, there's another objective uh, that when Pastor Joshua sits enough on a Sunday and has guys like me in the pulpit, there begins to be a burning in the, in the bones that, that only preachers can really know that says, oh, I can't wait to get back in there. Let me at that. So once he's refreshed and, and just uh, enthused, uh, I look forward to him coming back and just uh, uh, thundering from this pulpit once again to feed the people of God with the word of God, all for the glory of God. And so uh, may he find wonderful rest during this summer along t- uh, with his family. I am bummed that uh, my family... Uh, my family is not able to be here with us. Uh, my wife and nine kids uh, would be taking up a, a few seats. Uh, uh, you'd know we're here if they were here, but uh, they are uh, in corporate worship back home. And so uh, uh, we get to spend time in the Psalms. In fact, our church, I do bring you greetings from Highview Bible Church, which is in Clovis. And uh, we're going through the book of Psalms as well. Uh, working our way through various psalms, finding those rich, rich passages and, and nuggets throughout the psalms. It's been a wonderful time, and I hope it's been rich for you as well. So turn with me, please, to Psalm 73. Take out those Bibles of yours. Turn with me to the 73rd Psalm. And as I introduce this morning's text, I want to do so by recalling uh, the lyrics of a very... Um, well-known hymn, well-loved hymn called Come Thou Fount. Perhaps you know this song. And it talks about this fount, this fount of every blessing, how we want this fount to, to tune our hearts to sing about the great grace of God, streams of mercy never ceasing, How God's mercy calls for songs of loudest praise. 
teach me some melodious sonnet. And this song has been sung in heaven through the ages. It's sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. Praise his name. Praise this God. We're fixed upon it. This mount of God and his redeeming love. I love the hymns. I hope you do too. This hymn in particular, it gives us a a wonderful sense of who God is and how great his grace is and his goodness is to us. And so great a God of grace he is and this mount of redeeming love that it teaches us to sing with exuberance and with joy unto our great God, the one who is alone worthy of our worship. Do you know this mount of redeeming love? Disciples Church, I hope you do. I hope you know this God who draws us by his grace through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And I hope that as a result of being in right relationship with holy God through Christ, that you are one of those who sing of loudest praise and of of his great mercy and of his grace. But if you know this hymn, you know there's that third verse. That third verse that just seems to bring out the humanity and the reality of those who walk with God for those who are fixed upon God and his redeeming love. And it goes like this. Oh, to grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind, bind our wandering hearts to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's my heart. Please, please take this wandering heart of mine. Take and seal it and seal it for thy courts above. As for those who are fixed on the mount of our great God, we know we are indebted to grace, not to somehow try and repay him, not in that sense, but we know we owe God our lives, our obedience, our worship to him alone because he is the God who has shown us grace through Christ and that there's nothing better than to know him through the good news of the gospel. We ought to continually be constrained by this very grace of God. And yet, alas, we are prone to wander. Whether it's your heart, whether it's my heart, we all have wandering hearts. We are all prone to leave this God we love. Now, as a disclaimer, I want to be very clear about this. This this has nothing to do with God's inability somehow to, to, to keep his children. But in his providence in all things and in his sovereign work in our lives, he even allows us to come face to face with our own weakness, with our own feebleness, with the very reality that his children are prone to wander. It's really a testimony of our weak and wandering hearts that comes forth in this hymn, Come Thou Fount. And and I love the lyrics because it says we are 
prone to wander. Note it doesn't say that we might have the potential to wander. No, we are prone to wander. In our weak flesh, we have the tendency and even the proclivity to wander. You and I are inclined to wander. Do you feel it? Do you feel it, Disciples Church? Do you ever feel that, that burning struggle of a wandering heart? Well, Robert Robinson tried to capture that in his beloved hymn about those who know their hope is to be fixed firmly on the mount of our great God and his redeeming love, that we need his goodness like a fetter to bind our wandering hearts. Fetters, it's basically like a binding chain. That which restrains and shackles uh, that which we need because our hearts are prone to wandering, we need God to fetter and to chain and to bind our hearts to him. I've felt it more often than I care to admit, and perhaps you're in the same boat I am. How is it that in one moment, church, one moment we are on the right path? We're on the path following the Lord, and then in the very next moment, we find ourselves wandering. In one moment, you and I can be standing firm on the mount of God's redeeming love, and in the next moment, we find ourselves slipping in one moment, that race described in Hebrews 12, we are running steadily in this race. And then in the next moment, we're veering off course and even stumbling. Well, this text this morning, Psalm 73, it's going to take a closer look at wandering. It's going to take a closer look at straying and stumbling and slipping Psalm 73 is going to highlight that which can cause the human heart to stumble. And it's going to focus on some very specific items which cause us to take our eyes off the Lord. But in addition to the struggle, in addition to the, 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 the picture of a wandering heart, I'm so thankful for the way Psalm 73 will also point us to the solution. Psalm 73 will not simply leave us in the dark. It, uh, the darkness, it's going to be pervasive throughout Psalm 73. I'm, I'm giving you a heads up and warning now. There's going to be depravity and just uh, pictures of how weak and how um, uh, terrible our hearts can be. It's going to be pervasive throughout the psalm. And yet, the psalmist is going to take that and he's going to starkly contrast that with the glorious light of our wonderful God and how he himself is a solution for a wandering heart. Well, the context of this morning's passage, I believe it's found in the first two verses. Listen and follow along as I read verses 1 and 2 of the 73rd Psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. The context of this 73rd Psalm is a testimony. It is a testimony, a very personal, very intimate testimony of the psalmist. 
And I'm going to refer to the author of Psalm 73 as the psalmist throughout our time together this morning because there is some discrepancy on theologians uh, on, on who we believe actually penned this psalm. Uh, at face value, if you were to see uh, the name Asaph, uh, that's uh, one of the uh, uh, thoughts of who actually wrote this psalm. Uh, Asaph is one of King David's choir directors. You'll find his name in, in the Chronicles as well as uh, through various psalms. But uh, uh, while it bears his name, we don't know if Asaph actually penned the psalm. Uh, some theologians believe King David himself wrote this, but that Asaph's name is on there because he is the one who would lead the congregation and the people of God through the singing of this particular psalm along with others. So, for our purposes this morning, I'm simply going to refer to the author of the psalm as the psalmist. Here's what we do know, and we know this for sure. We know this as reflected throughout our text this morning. We know this, the psalmist is well acquainted with God. He knows the Lord well. He has walked with the Lord for some time. There is great intimacy between the person writing this and God above. He knows God with great conviction. Look how he begins the psalm. Truly, truly, what I'm about to tell you, he's saying, this is rock-solid truth. There is no doubt about what I'm about to tell you. I am thoroughly convinced in my mind and in my heart what I'm about to tell you is the truth. Not that the rest of the scripture isn't inerrant or infallible. We know scripture is true. But this psalmist seems to be so moved by what he's about to write and share with the people of God that he starts with this, with this word, truly. Listen up. Don't miss this. I've got something so truly wonderful for you. And here it is. Let me begin with this established truth. God is good. Our wonderful God is good. He's good to Israel. He's good to his people. He's good to his children. Wonderful God is good to those who are pure in heart. And after beginning with that established truth, the psalmist then goes on into giving this very honest, this very humble testimony about himself. And that he himself is someone whose feet had almost stumbled, someone whose steps had nearly slipped. So here's what's going on in the very first two verses of Psalm 73. Yes, I believe it provides a great context for the rest of our chapter, but Psalm 73, 1 and 2, church, is a very concise pattern of solid, sound, and biblical theology. Here's what I mean by that. When you and I begin with a high and an exalted view of our God, and when we couple that with a very low and a very honest and humble view of ourselves and one another, in all likelihood, that is a recipe for solid and sound and biblical theology. And here's why. When you and I think of God in his rightful place enthroned over the universe, the earth as his footstool, when we see him as altogether glorious, 
When you and I understand our darkness and our depravity and our humility before holy God, you put that together and that sets the stage. It creates a wonderful platform for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to shine so brightly in the face of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Christ is altogether glorious. You see, the psalmist was a solid theologian. He knew truth. He knew that God is altogether wonderful and good, and he humbly knew the truth about his own weak, about his own wandering heart. I hope that's where we all are this morning. So that as we spend the next few minutes now in exposition, may our time together really be taken by the Holy Spirit of God to use the words, to use the Holy Scripture of God to point us to a very high view of God so that you and I would be humbled before the throne of God in order that the eyes of our wandering hearts would once again be pointed to the all-surpassing glory of the Son of God. So now listen as I read in verses 3 to 12 as this psalmist would go from looking Godward in verse 1, now in verse 3 to looking outward Listen to his testimony of looking outward. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Instead of keeping his heart fixed on God and his goodness and his grace, the psalmist finds himself looking outward in verse 3. You ever find yourself doing this, Disciples, disciples Church? You ever find yourself one moment, you're, you're just walking closely with the Lord. Perhaps you've been in the Word. Perhaps you've been listening to, to music that exalts God. Perhaps you've spent time with a brother or sister in Christ who's just built you up. Perhaps after corporate worship, you feel very energetic and enthused to take on your week following the Lord fixed on him and his redeeming love and his grace. And then you find yourself looking outward. Perhaps it's when you clock in tomorrow morning. Perhaps it's when you go home and there's, there's some chaos and struggle in the home under your roof and the very eyes of your heart go from looking Godward now to looking outward at things of this world and even other people. Remember Peter, the story in Matthew chapter 14 and other parts of the Gospels where he would do something that no one had ever done. He walked on water. Peter walked on water. He defied all the laws of science and physics and was walking on water. Why was that? His eyes were fixed 
upon the Lord. But what happened? Right after that, he begins to look outward. And the wind is blowing, the storm is raging, the waves are starting to move and billow. And he takes his eyes off the Savior and his eyes go elsewhere. And you know what happens after that. Well, the psalmist here is honest enough to say, hey, Peter's not the only one. I have taken my eyes off the Lord and I've set my sights outward. I've set my eyes on the wicked and the arrogant. Not only did he watch and observe, but he took it a step further and perhaps you can identify with him. The psalmist claims he began to envy the wicked and the way they prosper. Envious here, it literally means to be provoked to jealousy, moved, so inwardly and passionately moved to be jealous of the world. Me reading this, it's terrible because I find myself doing this when I see others struggling with sin. And sometimes people struggle, especially when they struggle with sins that I have no weakness toward. Tisk, tisk, tisk. What are they thinking? Why are they struggling with that? And, and, I, and I tend to read people and their testimonies and I hear about things and I think, you know, that psalmist, he shouldn't be envying the wicked. He should be turned off by the wicked. You know, especially the fact that he's a church leader. He's in music ministry. He's, he's one of those whose pictures is on the church website. And, and he should know better, right, than to be envious of the wicked. You know, verse 3 is a good reminder, church. Verse 3 is such a good reminder that it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, how long you've been serving Him, how long you've been in formal ministry, how mature you might be in the faith, the fact that you are still alive and breathing on this earth, the fact that you are encased in this very flesh, your heart will be prone to wander. Verse 3 is also a good reminder that when we get into this mode of looking outward, we start doing things opposite of what God calls his people to do. Instead of thinking rightly about the wicked and the arrogant, doesn't matter if you're a rookie, it doesn't matter if you're a veteran in Christ, your heart can start thinking and start envying and start being provoked to jealousy to the point of slipping and stumbling we look at the arrogant wrongly and the wicked wrongly when we start looking outwardly. Verses 4 to 12 really lay out some very specific reasons on why the psalmist would become envious and jealous. Perhaps you can identify with him. For starters, the wicked have no pangs. Pangs isn't something we use much in our vocabulary today. But pangs literally are binding fetters. That's the very term, right, that we just uh, introduced this chapter with and Come Thou Found, that lyric of, of needing a, uh, God to, to bind us with his fetters. Fetters um, really are, are, should be a good thing uh, for the child of God because we need the Lord to, to daily constrain us and to hold us close to him. 
And yet, when believers are in the state of looking outwardly, of wandering away from God, here's what we do. We flip that. We, we look at the wicked and we think, they don't have any pangs. They don't have any fetters. They are not bound to live a certain way. They get to live the good life, the easy life. They're not bound or constrained like believers are. Furthermore, the wicked don't seem to have any troubles. Psalmist is, is saying they're not stricken like the rest of us. A.W. Tozer talks about the unregenerate uh, man does not know the hardship of the regenerate life. And that's interesting because you would think if they're unregenerate, they, you know, they must be. But really the regenerate person, the one who knows what he ought to do and struggles to do it, we feel oftentimes like we're the ones constrained. We're the ones um, uh, who are stricken with trouble and we begin to lament the fact that we don't have the freedoms that the world has. You know, someone with a lot of money, we can think to ourselves, wow, why, why did they get that? Why does that movie star have all the fame? The rock star, the popular person, the, the, the athlete who signs a supermax contract for multi-millions uh, worth of dollars. Uh, why is it that we are moved in our hearts so quickly to envy folks like that. It is as if they aren't stricken with troubles. It is as if their lives are entirely trouble-free. Well, as the psalmist continues this outward look at the wicked, he sees some other things about them in that, namely, their bodies are fat and their eyes swell out through fatness. We all know what that means, right? So let's just move on. No, it requires a little clarification because that is not to be meant to be understood in modern-day American context. He's not envying the wicked for any size uh, physically. Rather, fat and fatness in this context uh, is, is to be viewed as very positive. Why is that? Because the poor were very malnourished. They were, they were skin and bones. They, they were emaciated due to a, an unhealthy diet, not having enough to eat at times, where, where good meals were hard to come by. You contrast that with the wealthy. The wealthy who, who had the resources and the wherewithal to get whatever they wanted to stock uh, their, their cupboards and so forth. They, 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 meals were, just weren't uh, something they had to think about because they had a bountiful supply of food. You know, um, if you wanted to, to, to picture that uh, vividly in your mind, consider the stories of captive Israel uh, when they would be enslaved to the various uh, empires, whether it be the Babylonians or the Persians um, or, or, or uh, the, the Egyptians. The ruling party always were looked at in their decadence and, and their, their bountiful um, supply of food and other things. So that's what we're to understand here in this reference to fat and fatness. You know, the, the world just doesn't seem to struggle with uh, even basic things like food. Then in verse 6, the, the psalmist is going to use more picturesque terms as he refers to the wicked and the arrogant in clothing terms. Around their necks hangs this necklace of pride. 
Their garment, what do they wear for clothing? Violence. And so the psalmist is looking at all this and he's thinking, I don't get it. These cocky people, they clothe themselves with violence and what happens? They prosper. How is it that they get to live a life so much better than mine? Verses 8 to 10, psalmist refers to their speech. Their speech is malicious. It is threatening. They even speak out against the heavens. Look at the end of verse 9. Their tongue struts through the earth. If that's not a display of pride, boastful pride, even to the extent of questioning the Almighty himself. Look at verse 11 with me. God, what does he know? What does he know about anything? Does he have any knowledge? Well, after the psalmist makes this observation of looking outwardly at the wicked, he concludes with a very solemn, very serious thought in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. Disciples Church, you ever look outwardly at the wicked? Do you ever wonder yourself why they prosper? Well, I, I want to encourage you, be careful. Be careful in your observation of the world because it could be a matter of time until your wandering mind leads to a wandering heart. Well, looking outwardly at them, you would think, okay, he's taste of the world. He shouldn't want any more of that. Come back home, bring it back to the Lord and look from outwardly to Godwardly, but he doesn't do that. As we're going to find out, it's not quite time that he refocuses his eyes where they should be because in verses 13 to 16, he goes from looking outward to looking inward. Follow along as I read in verses 13 to 16. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said... I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 13 to 16 is vitally important to understanding this passage. It's very important because there are some of us right here, even this morning, those of us who tend to internalize matters when we go through challenging times. While some people will slip and stumble because of their propensity to look outward and flirt with the world, there are some of us who have that propensity to look inwardly and to become seriously and even overly introspective. But you've got to be careful. A word to the wise church. Focusing our sights inward can be just as dangerous and just as destructive as looking outward. And here's why. One of the most dangerous and destructive parts of, of spending your time looking inward is this issue of self-pity. And it's becoming so engrossed in oneself, you keep everybody else out, and you have this pity party within. Look at that in verse 13. 
the psalmist is so engrossed in himself. Here I am. Here I am all this time trying to live upright. I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to live innocently. I've tried to keep uh, my life clean of the, uh, of the filth of the world. And you know what? I've done it all in vain. In vain I've tried to keep myself clean. So not only is the psalmist finding out that as he looks outwardly, the wicked and the arrogant prosper. What's worse, the other side of the coin, is that the righteous and the innocent suffer. What a terrible deal he's thinking. He contrasts himself with the worldly people. Those folks, they don't have a care in the world. And yet believers are the ones who are stricken and rebuked and suffer all day long. Well, in verse 15, there's a little bit of... Uh, of rationality, if you will. The the psalmist kind of catches himself. While he's having this introspective pity party, he gathers himself enough to have this brief flash to, to think to himself, if I had said thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's what he's saying. The psalmist is saying, Lord, if, if I would have gone around and just started blurting out everything I'm feeling inside, if I would have worn all my frustrations and feelings on my sleeve, I would have betrayed others by leading them astray. This is a church leader who says, oh, at least I'm keeping it in. There, there's some sort of redeeming quality, at least of being introspective because you, you, you keep your angst to yourself instead of dragging others into that pit of despair with you. But even with that said, church, focusing inward is still as dangerous and destructive as focusing outward. The answers to life's struggles are not and will never be found within. Introspectively search as you may and with all your might, but inevitably as you look within, You're going to become tired and you're going to become weary. And oftentimes, looking within for answers, you're only going to find more questions. Not to mention the the potential of just exploding sometime because you've tried to just harness all of that uh, um, frustration within. It's like that pot of boiling water with a lid that's tightly capped. It's only a matter of time until that just explodes potentially scalding you and those around you. Well, look how the psalmist ends this particular section of looking within in verse 16. When I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So verses 3 to 12, psalmist looks outward, focuses on the wicked and the arrogant to the point of becoming envious and jealous. And then here in Psalm uh, 73, verse 13 to 16, the psalmist then looks inward, introspectively searching for answers within. And if we were to end here right now, my timer up and we excused you all, that would be a sad rest of our day. Because we are left in this discouraging truth. This truth that answers can't be found, comfort can't be found within or without. You know, talk about despair. When you don't have hope, it's one thing to be discouraged, but it's another thing to find ourselves in despair. And despair comes upon us like a heavy blanket 
when we don't have hope. But hope is what begins to to flicker right here. As we now pick up in verse 17, the psalmist begins to find his hope once again. He remembers his hope. The psalmist goes back to the very truth of, of solid and sound and biblical theology, which begins by looking Godward and seeing him for who he is. And so what does he do in 17? He goes from looking outward to then looking inward, and now in verse 17 to looking upward. Listen as I read verses 17 to 27. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How, are they de- how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself and you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my wandering heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So when he goes to looking upward here, I I don't mean any physical direction, of course, but really looking upward to the Lord, to the God of heaven, to the one our Lord Jesus would, to whom he'd pray, our Father who art in heaven. The psalmist needed a refocusing, a recalibration of his vision. He had to stop looking outwardly at others. He had, to try, he had to stop trying to look inwardly for answers, and he had to shift his vision upward to the one who's enthroned, to the one who is the sovereign king, to the one who is thrice holy, to the one who is the God only wise, the one who sees all, the one who knows all, The psalmist's hope had to be found in looking upward to our wonderful God who is at work in all things for his purposes and his glory and for the good of his people. It has been said that sometimes the Lord must put us flat on our backs so that the only direction we can look is up at him. So it is with this upward perspective that God would give him sight to see things for the way they are. It was a needed perspective, much needed. Perhaps you're here this morning in need of perspective. You've done your time of looking outward. You've even done some time looking inward. Is it not time, church, to look upward once again and to remember truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, to, to remember God and his goodness He needed to be reminded of that truth. And truth is truth. I know our truth gets rocked when when, when circumstances occur and trouble comes our way. But regardless of the inability of our eyes, of our hearts to see that God is good, 
truth is truth and God is good, regardless of our hearts being blinded, regardless of the thickness of the fog of this world and the wickedness thereof, as, as much as that may cloud our vision, that doesn't change a thing about God's goodness. That's a matter of us being reminded by grace and, and re- refocusing and recalibrating to remember God's goodness. But God's goodness, goodness hasn't changed. We are the ones who are in flux. Our God is faithful and he's good. And it's the clarity and the brilliance of the God's goodness that we need to see continually in the darkest of times. Well, the psalmist would also be reminded in this section that the converse of God's goodness to his children is also true in that while God is so good to Israel and to his children, God's wrath will be unleashed upon his enemies. Look at the end of verse 17. He discerns how, how God in this holiness and in his rightful place is just to exact his wrath upon the wicked. In verse 18 to 20, it's very terrifying actually, very frightening picture of how holy God will deal with the wicked. And not only how he deals with them, but note how sovereign he is in the way he deals with them and that he is the one who sets them in slippery places. He is the one who makes them fall to ruins. He will uh, be the one to destroy and sweep them away utterly by terrors. It's... It's so frightening to think of how the wicked and arrogant will meet their end and how they will someday know the full reality and the full truth of Hebrews chapter 10 when it talks about how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the living God. The psalmist is reminded of how how foolish of of him it is to, to be envious of the wicked and jealous of the arrogant If you would picture with me someone falling off a very tall building, whether it's the Empire State Building or or any other tall skyscraper, imagine that, I know it's morbid, but imagine that person falling off and how incredibly foolish it would be of us to be watching this person fall and to think, huh, what it would be like to trade places with that person right now. Here I am, I'm stuck at this desk job in this very mundane uh, work in my career, in this season of life. I'm just going about my business and, and no, not much excitement. What would it be like to switch places with that guy falling? That guy falling probably doesn't have to clock in and out at work. He's probably not tied to a ball and chain of a marriage or has kids that give him fits. He, he's just floating around with the birds, flailing his arms, and he's not confined to anything. What would it be like to switch places with that guy right now? And as ridiculous as that might sound in envying that person's position, this is exactly what the psalmist is trying to paint for us right now. How foolish it is. We are just as guilty as the psalmist. Being envious, being jealous of those who seem to have all this freedom floating around and yet will inevitably and swiftly know a terrifying destruction. Perhaps you've heard the analogy of if kites could talk. 
If kites could talk, a kite might say, well, here I go again. Uh, I'm going to get taken off the shelf because it's windy outside. And uh, um, it's time to go and, and float and, and, and fly with the birds and, and be elevated by the winds. But frankly, I'm getting a little tired of this kite life. And you know why? I'm tired of this string attached to my midsection here. Uh, I'm I'm attached to the string while I see the other birds. They're flapping and flying and going wherever they want. In fact, they can land wherever they want and then take off again. Here I am, tethered by the string. Woe is me. And who is this guy holding the string? I'm at his whim. He can put me up in the air when he wants. He can reel me in when he wants. He makes me go in the direction he wants. Is this really any way to live? I want to be like the birds. I want to soar with them. I'd give anything to sever this string and to fly and soar with all that freedom. If kites could talk. Would they reflect the very foolishness, the very discontentedness of a wandering heart? A wandering heart like that of the psalmist and the wandering heart that's beating right here inside me. You know, you don't have to be an expert in kiteology to understand that uh, if there's a soaring kite and that string is somehow severed, uh, what would take place next? All that thought of free-floating freedom, it becomes just a lie from the pit. Why? Because it's only a matter of time. It's a matter of time until gravity takes its course. It's a matter of time until that kite either gets tangled up in the power lines or, or comes crashing down in the dirt. Well, the psalmist is beginning to get this kind of clarity here. He's beginning to think, man, it's so foolish for me to envy the, the wicked and, and, and to, to have my sight set outwardly. It's foolish of me to think inwardly. But there's great clarity. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The psalmist is saying, God, even when I look inside my soul for the answers, all I found was bitterness there. I, I'm so dumb, Lord. I, I at times act like an animal instead of one who has been made, in, created in your image. Instead of acting like a child has re- been redeemed by grace, I act like the unredeemed world. And then in verse 23 to 27, he continues to not only compare himself, uh, but he contrasts that by looking upward into this really great extension of praise and worship as he thinks about the character and, and how wonderful and great our God is. Verse 23, he looks at God's faithfulness, the intimate love that he shows toward his children. Verse 24, how wonderful is God? His guidance, he gives his wise counsel. And at the end of verse 24, at the consummation of all things, God is going to take his children home into glory. I love that. He's thinking about all the great truths of salvation and the character of his God. In verse 25, the psalmist would reflect on how desperate he is. 
Yes, I'm like a brute beast at times before you. You are so wonderful and faithful. God, when I understand you rightly, you know what? The rest of the world just pales in comparison to you, Lord. Forgive me for thinking so dumb. Verse 26, his own wandering heart is contrasted yet again with the greatness of our wonderful God. Even in struggling with failure, it's God who who continually gives strength. It's God who continually supplies what we need. You know, the wicked may have everything in this world. They may accumulate wealth and fame and, and, and power, but let them have it. The psalmist is coming to this conclusion even in 26. Let them have it. Because those who belong to the Lord, get this, he himself is our portion. Chew on that this week, church. Chew on the fact that God himself is our portion. You know, when we get to heaven someday, there's so many theories about what we're going to do and what it's going to be like. And uh, people who don't know scripture talk about, you know, sitting on, on clouds with harps of gold. And even sometimes we, our minds and hearts will look toward heaven because we can't wait to see uh, loved ones from the past or people in scripture who have gone before us. But let's set this, the record straight. The reason why you and I ought to look forward to heaven is because we will get God. We will get God in his entirety. We will see our Savior face to face, and he will be so sufficient in his amazing and brilliant glory that it will induce eternal worship. That's how great our God is. So when he says our God himself is our portion, that's amazing. We get God. You and I get God. We get God now. Though it's in part, through a mirror dimly, we don't get to see him face to face yet. We're still encased in in flesh. We struggle with sin. We have wandering hearts. But right now, God himself being our portion is sufficient. His grace is sufficient to carry us to the day when there will be no more tears, no more death, no more illness. And we will worship our great God with him as our full portion for all eternity. Well, How utterly foolish it is to be envious and to be jealous of the wicked. Verse 27 is is that reminder again. Those who are far from God will perish. Why? Because the Lord is going to put an end to all who are unfaithful to him. How does he conclude all this? He goes from looking Godward at the very beginning to looking outward there in the first few verses to looking inward in the middle and then looking upward and rightly and with all clarity, looking upward, entering into the sanctuary of God. And then we conclude our morning's passage by the psalmist looking forward, looking forward. Godward, outward, inward, upward, forward. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. As a result of all of these truths, the truths of God's greatness, the truths of his own weak, wandering heart, the psalmist looks forward to now telling, to giving testimony, to bearing witness. Encourage you. Share your testimony this week. That might be with a coworker. That might be a stranger. With a stranger, that'd be good. Tell your kids your testimony. 
Tell your family once again of the great things God has done in your life that they might be pointed to, to entering into God's sanctuary. Because when we are busily looking outward at the world and introspectively within, missions is not on our mind. Evangelism, what's that? Proclamation of the gospel, who cares? Because we're so busy and gross in things of the world or we're stuck in the pit of self-pity within. But when we enter into the sanctuary of God, we realize the folly and the destruction of the wicked. We realize the senselessness of, of searching for answers within. And we recognize that the only way for a wandering heart is to reshift our focus back onto who God is and that which he's accomplished through his son Jesus. As a result of finding refuge in the sanctuary of God, I pray that that would passionately exhort us to tell others. God's going to bring people around you, might even be within your own family, under your roof, maybe at your job, maybe friends of yours, whose hearts are wandering right now. And it's a strong wander. They're, they're slipping. They're, they're, they're stumbling. And you've got the opportunity not to show that you've got your act together, that you don't wander, but to confess your own wandering heart is so tethered by a God who's faithful that even when you're faithless, he is, he is so good to you that he keeps you close to him. Testify of the great works of our God. Well, let's conclude and apply our text this morning. First of all, we've got to be honest. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Is my heart a wandering heart? Let me help you with that. Yes, it is. Um, if yours is like mine. Because we'll find ourselves comparing ourselves with the wicked and the world. Maybe we're stuck in that Maytag cycle of introspection. You're one of those perhaps quiet types that might not say much, but inside that storm is just raging and brewing. You're internalizing your circumstances to the point of being destructive. But if you're tired of looking outward and inward, church, consider the psalmist and where he found his only hope and comfort. His only peace was to look upward and to enter into the sanctuary of God. Let's be very practical. You might not know what is meant by entering the sanctuary of God. Church is one reflection of that. Come, be part of corporate worship. Hear the proclamation of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over. And as you hear this preached, then preach that to yourself and to others. The, you've got to enter in the sanctuary of God, yes, with God's people, whether it's at this place, whether it's in the sanctuary of your home, leading your family in, in, in worship, your, your wife and your kids, and, and, and those around you, your roommates, Enter into sanctuary of God doesn't have to be one time during the week. It can be daily. Let me even be more practical. What does it mean to enter the sanctuary of God? It means to set the eyes of your hearts on Christ. To look Christward. To look toward the one whose heart never wandered. With you and I having wandering hearts, we can't find the answers in one another or within ourselves. We've got to look to the one whose heart was steadfast. To the one whose heart was faithful through it all. 
through temptation, through trial, through torture, and through crucifixion. The Lord Jesus is the one whose heart never wandered. We look to him. We cry out to him. We pray to him. We proclaim him. We worship him. We sing to him. We talk to others about him. We talk to ourselves about him. We need to go to Christ. That is what it means to enter into the sanctuary of God. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. He would live the perfect life you and I could not. He would die the death that you and I deserved. And he alone would rise on the third day, flexing his utter sovereignty over sin and death. He would do that on our behalf. He is the only solution for our wandering hearts. Go to him, church. Fly to him continually. Cry out to him. In Matthew 11, our Lord Jesus would say these words, Come to me, all who labor, who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Disciples Church, may you turn your eyes upon Jesus. May you look full into his wonderful face so that all the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray together. Holy God, truly you are good. You're perfectly good in your character and you're graciously good to your children. But Father, you know the tendency of our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to look outward. As we compare ourselves with others, we look inward looking for answers. God, remind us that there are no answers to be found there or within. You know our hearts are prone to wander, to leave the very God we love. Thank you for being patient with us. And in your kindness, not only did you draw us to yourself first in salvation, but you continually draw us to yourself in our life of sanctification. So God, continually, please point us to your Son. May we enter into your sanctuary by beholding the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ, of his work on our behalf, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection that showed his power over sin and death. God, may our trust be found in him alone. Thank you for being stronger than our wandering hearts. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.